I'm Michael Barber, and this is The Accomplishment Podcast. It's a real pleasure to have an opportunity to speak to people with a stellar track record in professional sport. In the case of rugby coach Stuart Lancaster, it's true to say he falls into that category. Currently, he's senior coach at Leinster Rugby in Dublin, leading a team which has been taken from strength to strength to become one of the most successful teams in Europe. Their consistency is as impressive as their quality. He has also been coach of the England team and before that, head of player development. And before all of that, Stuart Lancaster was a teacher. Stuart has weathered some ups and downs in his career, leaving English rugby after their failure to qualify for the quarterfinals of the Rugby World Cup in 2015. He and I first met at the FA Technical Advisory Board in 2016. The premise of that board is that the manager of the England football team, Gareth Southgate, can learn from people with elite sport experience in other fields. All of us in the group have got to the point where we really do believe that. What Gareth Southgate has learned from Stuart Lancaster is a case in point. But has it worked the other way around too? Has Stuart found the debates in the technical advisory board at the FA helpful to him as coach of Leinster? I was very lucky in my development as a coach. You know, I was mentored by three great mentors, uh, Bill Bezik, um, Kevin Bowering and Brian Ashton. And Kevin in particular... He was the one that was always pushing me to go and speak to other sports and learn from other sports. And also, not only that, but learn from business and politics and the military. So the Technical Advisory Board, it isn't just sport to sport, is it? I mean, obviously, there's yourself, Matthew Syed on there. Um, we have people from the military. We have people from um, business and uh, the IPL, cricket. It's a great mix of people. And I think I've benefited throughout my career from learning from all those different organisations. And I think my sense was at the time football had only ever learned from within, you know, so recycling the same ideas. And I think that uh, diversity of opinion and the cross-session of opinion that's been created, the Technical Advisory Board, has been beneficial. And for me personally, yeah, I find them as as beneficial. I'm sure Gareth does in the, the Pathway Coaches, John McDermott's obviously there yeah. last time. Uh, paths are very similar, Gareth's and mine, because in that we both became interim coaches of a national team. So I took over England in 2012 in an interim capacity, in the same way that Gareth did. So he's gone on to be incredibly successful. I ran through the World Cup campaign and the Six Nations, everything leading into the World Cup in 2015, which led to a precursor to Gareth's tournament. So we were able to share a lot of ideas, uh, things that I'd learned from, things that went well, things that didn't go so well. I could pass on to him that hopefully um, he benefited from in the run-up to Russia and you know the subsequent tournaments. Right now, you enter uh, several years of having coached Leinster, who arguably certainly have been one of the most successful teams in Europe and possibly the most successful team where you could make that case. Uh, so you've built not just a team that has won things, but a, a team that sustained high-level performance over that period. When you look at that remarkable accomplishment, what would you highlight as the keys to that? What three or four things are the essence of your accomplishment? It's multitude, but it, it's very interesting case study i think in terms of high performance sport uh, but also i guess in business as well so so i arrived in 2016 so this is my seventh season now leinster had obviously achieved good levels of success they'd won three european cups and i think they had a 
an evolution of coaches from Michael Checker, who obviously went on to become the Australian coach, Joe Schmidt, who's now working with New Zealand. And then Leo Cullen took over uh, and I came in on the back of the England job. The keys from that point onwards were, A, it was a homegrown squad. So 95% of the squad was generated from the academy. So there's a very strong sense of identity. The culture was driven in collaboration between the coaches and the senior players. So there was a very good um, values-based approach to developing the environment. I think the quality of coaching and the quality of leadership that's been displayed in the last seven years has been strong. We've maximised our potential, if you like. I think there's been consistency over time with an ever-changing squad, but we've never had a a revolution. It's been an evolution. So it's maybe two senior players leave at the top end, two young academy players coming at the bottom end. So it's never been that sort of rise and fall of you often see in teams, you know, where they go through the sort of like life cycles and always have to go back to square one to start again. So there's been consistency of coaching and people within the coaching team but also enough change to create a new stimulus on on a one or two yearly basis and the diversity of the coaching team in terms of their backgrounds has been an added benefit as well so you've got myself from England you've got Robin McBride from Wales Felipe Contepomi came in from Argentina he's left now but Andrew Goodman's come in who's been with the Crusaders in New Zealand and then you've got this sort of Leo guys to be you know the sort of the Leinster identity piece so it's it's a lot of those things and just a genuine desire to want to win I was looking at this season's results yeah you've won all 12 games in the United Rugby Championship you've won both your games so far in the European Champions Cup as I see it, you've won every game you've had to play this season is that right to be honest in in rugby it's very very hard to do you know I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's it's easy to do in other sports but the emotional connection you need as a team um to win both home and away, when teams are desperate to beat you because it's their cup final. And then for us to manage that cycle of rotation of selection when not all the players play for us all the time because we've got a lot of violent players playing who often disappear to, to play in Six Nations and November Internationals. Yeah, it's been a great run so far. Obviously, we've got a long way to go and the end of the season where it really matters. So you talked about consistency over the years with the coaching team and an evolution of the team with young players coming in and other teams, but you've also got this weekly consistency of, of winning 12 out of 12. So w- when you've won your game one weekend, very few sports teams achieve that level of consistency week after week after week. But what do you do on a Monday to get that, to, to refocus everybody? To, okay, we've done that, we're going, going there. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think, I think um, we're pretty forensic in our review process. I always try and hit the sweet spot between congratulating the players on a job well done, but also not letting them off the hook with things we could do better. So the Monday morning review, I think, is a really important part of our process, win, lose, or draw. I think the inclusion of all the players in training means that we can rotate the team or change the team, and yet we still appear cohesive. Um, And I think that Monday afternoon leading into Tuesday, they're all great opportunities for us to develop that level of cohesion. And I think that really benefits us in the long term, to be honest. The culture you described applies to the entire squad, not just the people who are playing regularly for the first 15, is that right? Or first 23? We're very inclusive in training. So as a consequence, everyone feels part of the team, even if they're not necessarily playing that particular weekend. So if, say, we have 39 players training, I would never go 15 on 15 and leave nine players on the sideline. We'd always have right. maybe three teams of 13 and I'd find right. ways and decision-making games to make everyone feel involved. The younger players are always integrated early. So I think it's a good model for success in business or any other sport, really, in that our connection between our academy players and our senior players is very strong. 
So everyone's in the meeting learning. So even though there's only 23 played in any one weekend, the squad benefits as a whole from the collective learning because we're all there together. And um, we're not there to point fingers or apportion blame. We're just there to grow and develop people. And I think that truly shows itself in the consistency, as you say. Absolutely. And you mentioned a few minutes ago that you really want to win. I looked at some research that was done for the British Olympic team a few years ago. They compared the people who win an occasional gold medal to those who win multiple gold medals like Laura Kenny or, or people like that. And one of the characteristics they pulled out of the multiple gold medal winners was that they not just like winning, they absolutely hate losing. <laughs> when they lose, they never say, according to this research, they never say, oh, well, I did my best, but I just wasn't good enough on the day or somebody else was better. They hate losing. Is that your experience in Leinster? I mean, you're a very generous thoughtful, positive person, but you've got this hard edge in the team that, that, that keeps winning week after week. How are you managing that and what, what does it feel like when you lose? We've got some serial winners in the team, Johnny Sexton probably being the epitome of that. He would want to win at Tiddlywinks. Um, <laughs> and so he drives a lot of the standards, but not just him, you know, the other senior international players who play for Leinster, who obviously have represented Ireland with such you know, credit over the last year or two, you know, and beat New Zealand away from home. And so we have some serial winners in the team. Um, but also the pain of defeat does drive a harder edge. There's no doubt. Right. Um, so we've not, whilst we've had an amazing season so far, you know, this time last year, we lost in the Champions Cup final on the final play of the game. We lost in the semi-final of the URC on the back of that. The emotional hangover from the Champions Cup defeat meant we put all the effort in last year and we came up with nothing. The previous year, we won the URC, but we lost in the Champions Cup semi-final. The year before that, we lost in the Champions Cup final against Saracens. The year before that, we won the double. So the pain of defeat, and certainly for me personally, you know, amazing experiences with England and amazing highs, but the, the, the pain of defeat is, I, I can 100% resonate with what those Olympians say because, you know, it is painful when you put so much effort in and you care so much about the environment and you want to see, not for yourself personally, but for your family and your friends and the, the people that supported you to give them the reward and to have it taken away sometimes in a sport like rugby where the grey areas of the sport are so grey, you know, the refereeing decisions and the bounce of the ball. Sometimes you think you're mad for doing it, to be honest, but um, it's the chase of wanting that changing room feeling as well. That feeling that you've got when you're in the changing room and you, you've, you've got the, the victory. Yeah, so the exhilaration of victory sort of overall outweighs the pain of defeat, but I don't know. It's 50-50, Michael. It's 50-50. So let's go back to England, which you've mentioned a couple of times. That's probably what many people would remember was, was that 2015 Rugby World Cup where you led England. They were in a very, very tough group in a bizarre draw done three years before the tournament. Uh, so you were matched in a group with Australia and Wales. The, the bounce of the ball and the refereeing decisions and small margins and all of those things apply at that level. But that must have been a very painful experience given what you've said about defeat um, there's a book the power of moments and it talks about the peak memory and, and the last memory so the analogy it gives is you know you go into a theme park and you've had a terrible day queuings cost your fortune uh, but you go on the best ride at the end and you get a free lollipop when you leave and you think oh what a great day that was but on the flip side it, it happens as well so you had a great day but then the last ride is a terrible one and you know, you get stuck in a traffic jam coming home. You think, oh, a bad day it was. So people get driven towards the final memory. And I always feel it's such a shame 
with the time we had with England, not just me personally, the players who committed so much, the coaching team who were all amazing, you know, the management team, you know, everything gets drawn back to one moment in 2015 when we'd had amazing development and success of a very young England team that went on to become successful. But but yeah, you're right, at the pointy end of sport, it often comes down to one moment. It could be a penalty shootout in football, it could be, you know, a VAR decision, it could be um the bounce of the ball in, in rugby or a refereeing decision or whatever. Um so to lose the Wales game and then to try and qualify on um, on the back of beating Australia and then to lose the Australia game. I wouldn't have wished it on my worst enemy, to be honest. I mean, it was so painful. Like, there was a sense of responsibility I still carry, if I'm being honest, and um, disappointment that all the hard work, you know, couldn't be shown in the latter stages of the tournament when the team was so connected to the crowd, the supporters, you know, were so behind the players. The players had given their all in the preparation. So, yeah, the pain it caused, my family and friends, yeah, it, it it was it's tough. I mean, you must be a deeply resilient person to bounce back from that. What enabled you to bounce back and learn the lessons and become possibly the most successful coach of uh, in European club rugby? A bit of Cumbrian resilience and grit, to be honest, was part yeah. of it. You know, the very first thing I did was get away from... Uh, we'll get back up north, actually. I went to Cumbria and, and write down the lessons learned. While it's fresh in my mind, really think about what I could have done better or what went well or what, what would have changed. And So have that journal to myself, if you like. I've still got it. Actually, no one's... I've shared yeah. probably more so with Gareth than anyone else, but also the Olympic sports, really. But I've shared it with other rugby coaches. There was definitely a period of solitude, if you like, and taking myself away. Now, people sometimes like to talk through the pain of a disappointment or whatever. I wanted to think it through, you know, on my own. So I was probably walking up and down the Lake District more so than I normally would. Christmas came and went and I actually decided, because the Six Nations come around the corner, to get out of the country and go and visit Australia, New Zealand, South Africa and generally just have a mental break from what I thought was the never-ending narrative of the failed World Cup and now the glorious Six Nations, you know. So that helped. It sounds a shame to say this, but I think moving out of England to get a coaching job in Ireland has definitely been was definitely a good thing for me personally. Uh, but generally, also getting back on the horse, so to speak, getting back out there and coaching that also helped. I heard you in the technical advisory board we were talking about earlier in the conversation go through in that presentation you did for Gareth the key lessons you'd learned. There's the teacher in you there. Is that you, I've had this experience? I'm going to share it. Does that help you deal with the pain as well? Yeah, 100%, 100%. I mean, it is, it's definitely the teacher in me that I I love to share what I've learned or, or pass on what I've learned, my experiences to help people improve. You know, that's why I'm a coach, I guess, because, you know, I'm trying to help um, a young group of players ages between 20 and 35, not just become better at rugby, become better uh, set up for life, you know. So, for example, we've got um, quite an extended injured group at the moment. So I've set up a professional development program within the club for the injured players you know so whilst they're you know they've got time on their hands and they're thinking obviously about trying to get back to playing again something that they can be using or be developing and whenever I speak to another coach and sometimes it could be coaches who we end up playing against in the future I can't help but uh, try and share what I've learned and the rewarding thing now is I guess now I'm, I'm what, 53 now so the players who I used to coach have now become coaches so you're beginning to get this sort of like natural mentorship yeah. uh, role beginning to evolve, um, which I really enjoy to us. So I'd like 
I'd like to continue to do that. But it's in answer to the question, it's definitely the teacher in me that um, that drives me that way. You mentioned in passing making sure that the players you develop aren't just getting better at rugby, but getting better as rounded human beings, you hope. And you mentioned that at Leinster, you've got quite a lot of players also doing degrees or and, and strong associations with the, the wonderful universities in Dublin. In Ireland, the development model is a bit later. In England, they tend to make decisions on academy prospects at 18, you know, you're in or you're not in type thing. At Leinster, between 18 and 20, you're very much in the sub-academy. And you only join the academy at 20 and you're three years in the academy between 20 and 23. You're easily capable of completing your degree as well as being in the sub-academy and the academy um, before you make the transference into the uh, into the senior squad. So a lot of our players would come through some of the stronger private schools, such as like your Black Rocks and St. Michael's. And um, so they've got that sort of academic background. Um, but that's not to say everyone does. You know, we've got also got our lads who come through a different system, the club system. So much variety and scope within Dublin to study at any level. You know, you could be, you know, study to become a lawyer, but also, you know, there's very practical applied courses as well. So, you know, there's something for everyone. I think the model in Ireland is very strong. You know, it's not it's not a coincidence that they're ranking the ball in the world at the moment and the provinces right. are, are strong. It's a model not dissimilar to um, New Zealand, which is obviously a small island, not a huge rugby playing population in comparison to, say, France and England but can punch above the weight because the quality of the people, the quality of the system and the rounded nature of development that takes place within the programme. When I talked to Rob Baxter at the Exeter Chiefs about this, he says the fact that they're studying makes them better rugby players as well as give them more options in their lives and, and a more round human being. Is, is that your experience too, that, that studying is actually, it's not a kind of choice you have to make or, or attention. It's actually one contributes to the other and they go well together. Playing rugby yeah, well. yeah, 100%. And I think, I think there's only so many hours in the day you can train to be a rugby player. You know, Mondays, Tuesdays are pretty busy. Wednesdays, usually a day off. Thursday would be half a day. Friday's captain's run day. Saturday, you play. Sunday, you recover, you repeat. You know, and that's assuming you get picked. If you don't get picked, then, you know, you haven't got the weekend bit either. So, and not everyone can get picked every week. So, there is spare time. And it's getting the players to use that time constructively is good. Um, to get them to have a life outside of rugby is good. To develop their understanding of what they're going to do when they finish rugby. Because, you know, we've had two players already this season, one player last season who retired early through injury. Or you've got five players, I think, left last season because of this pressure on on the squad, because of the younger players coming up and obviously you can't hold everyone all the time. Those lads who leave the top might not necessarily pick up another contract. So therefore, you know, you need to prepare yeah. for life after rugby. You mentioned injuries there. Some of the people listening to this who aren't necessarily rugby fans or maybe not even sports fans, but they're interested in leadership that you've been talking about so lucidly, they might be reading about head injuries and the effect of that on the future of rugby. What's your perspective on, on that, Stuart? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's it's a huge concern. The cases that have come through and are in the public domain at the moment, you know, it's definitely a concern. I played in the same era as, as a lot of the players who are taking this action and suffering these consequences. I do think from the era I played in to the era I coach in now, it's completely different. Well, all the training I did during the, during the working week was as challenging as the game, to be honest. And, you know, we rarely do contact in training now. You know, the head injury protocols and the general way in which we try and manage, you know, concussion and the importance of the welfare of the player coming at the forefront of our decision-making is, is far and away improved from, from you know, when I was playing, in the, when the game went fresh in the mid-90s, early 2000s. 
So I hope we're making progress. It is a concern, obviously, for those players. But I can be confident in that if you came to an environment like Leinster, you would recognise, yeah. obviously, there are dangers in playing the sport, as, a, as there are in other sports. But everything has been done to mitigate risk as, as, as best as we can. The tackle technique, you know, I would, I would 100% agree that the tackle needs to be lower. Often there are double tackles in the olden days. You know, it was like often single tackles, but it's double tackles. But, you know, the by continually red carding, yellow carding, you know, citing players and making sure that behaviours change through the appliance of the law means that tackles will be lower and generally make the game safer. But that, that sounds like really good and very, very important progress. I guess your hope is to have a stellar season, perhaps once in a lifetime season with Leinster, and then you're, then you're moving to Racing in Paris. Is that your dream next six months? Uh, how, how are you going to try and pull that off? Do dreams happen in sports? Sometimes they do, sometimes they yeah. don't. But that, that is the dream. The dream, obviously, is to keep winning this season, to put ourselves in the best position to, to win the European Cup. The European Cup, ironically, is held in Dublin this year, the final. Oh, all right. All right. So that's an added motivation. So there's more than enough motivation. Um, it's the week before the final, final of the URC. So to, to go through quarterfinals, semifinals in both the European Cup and the URC, back to back, you know, if you like, and, and win after winning in knockout rugby, I would say. Obviously, the World Cup is is not dissimilar to that in that you've got to win quarterfinal, semifinal, final, but you're only doing it in one competition. Our goal this year is to try and win the double and do it in both competitions. Yeah, we have to win two quarterfinals, two semifinals and two finals within six or seven weeks. If we can top the league in the URC, then that gives us home advantage, which means you could end up with two finals in Dublin. So come the end of May, we'll know the answer to the question. But come June, I'll be leaving Leinster and um, I'll take a few weeks holiday. And then I'm beginning as head coach on a four-year contract at Racing 92 in Paris. And my other priority for the remaining six months of my Leinster contract is to learn French <laughs> on my on the evenings that I'm not worrying about trying to win European Cups. Well, given what you said about all your players doing degrees and various forms of studying, <laughs> uh, you can role model that by becoming a master yeah. of French by uh, by June. Coming to the end of our conversation, we talked about your teaching background. You can see across the UK, if you were in front of an audience of head teachers or GPs or hospital administrators, just to, to give examples, or, or, or police chiefs for that matter, what's your pitch on being a great leader? One of the privileges, I'm sure Gareth would agree with this, of coaching England you know, at any level is you do get the chance to try and make a difference, You know, to try and be a force for good and pass on what you've learned and the transference lessons of sport into the public sector or the private sector or business or whatever, you know, it's all relevant. So, yeah, what, what do I talk about when I talk to those people? I, I try and talk about leading yourself first, about understanding yourself, how to understand your own personality, your own strengths and weaknesses as a leader, how to inspire people with a vision, self-awareness, um, self-management, managing your own emotional energy as the leader, uh, understanding what drains your... I talk about the emotional battery, like what drains us, how do we recharge our batteries quickly so we're back to 100%. So that sort of self-awareness, self-management piece, understanding strengths and weaknesses of yourself, you know, which obviously you can enhance by reflection, feedback, experience, I guess, teaches you it as well. The ability to manage others and the ability to manage multiple relationships at any one time. Not everyone wants to be a leader, which I understand, but for those that do, 
it is part of the job and you know finding ways to continually connect it's like spinning plates isn't it you know touching base with everyone this is probably one of the things i've learned you know i'm quite task focused um so leaving the tasks to the evening when you know there's there's a bit of time to catch up on the the, the tasks if you like but Keeping the relationship piece is important. I think setting the vision, so inspiring people towards a vision and giving them a clear signpost along the way about what we're trying to do and how we're trying to achieve it and keeping people connected to to that, I think is important. I think I would talk about um, the importance of culture in teams, the importance of identity, who we are, what do we stand for, um, what's our higher purpose, what are our behaviours and values that will underpin that? What are we driving towards and how can we create ownership, you know, true ownership where we're, as a team, we're collaborating and we are, we're sharing it together. If you came into Leinster, Michael, I'd like to think you'd see strong culture, strong identity, you know, homegrown talent. You'd see strong values and behaviours within the players, the way in which they interact with each other, the way in which they meet you and, inter- and and make you feel part of the team, you know, and, and part of the environment. You'd see team meetings where there'd be debates going on between coaches and, and players, or you could call this management and staff, you know, where we're in it together. And ultimately, if we make a decision, we all back the decision and try and make the decision work. There's a great quote about um, the silent dance, you know, that happens where people say the right thing in the meetings, but actually behind the scenes, there's a, an unsettling dance going on where people are not really saying what they think. And there's that level of truth and honesty and accountability and commitment. And I think as a leader, it is a challenge to be a leader, you know, and the, the higher up the leadership chain you go, the more demanding it is. Being a prime minister, being in charge of the NHS, being in charge of the Met Police, it is challenging, but you are the public face of the organisation. Therefore, you have to accept that responsibility and the challenges that go with it and enjoy it because ultimately it's a privilege. That, that's very, very, very good and very wise. just want to pick up two things, a level of detail in what you said. So th- this point about the, the, getting the honesty in the room, as it were, I, uh, years and years ago, I was speaking to somebody, a head teacher, who said, you know, I get my management team together, they sit in my office, we have a meeting, it's all fine and it finishes on time. And then I look out through my window at the school car park and all the people in the management team are having a real argument about what, what they should have said in the meeting. So the real meeting's happening in the car park, he said. Uh, and the, the, there is a leadership role of getting people to talk openly, even when it's possibly going to lead to vigorous debate. Are you good at getting people to say what they actually think in, the, in the, these team meetings or your coaching team meetings? Again, if you took the Leinster example... The longer you're with people and the more the trust grows and the more the level of honesty grows and the, the level of ownership, the better it's going to be. Uh, internationally, it's always challenging because you're there intermittently. I found that harder. I'd like to think we were definitely growing in that direction, but there's definitely some reflections I've had in the since then that you know perhaps I could have handled better or, or done differently. And I think the players would probably say the same. I think that, that idea of constructive conflict is, is really important. And you only truly get that if you... If you've got the right people in the room in the first place. Yes, that's an important point. The other thing I wanted to pick up, you mentioned it right at the beginning of this conversation and then again a couple of times since, about a sense of belonging and identity. And I can see how if you're Leinster or the Irish rugby team, how you can get that sense of identity. If you're running a tough comprehensive school in, uh, to, to name a city that you're familiar with, Leeds, what do you do as a head teacher to get that sense of belonging? Like I was 10 years a teacher. And we had uh, teacher training days. I was forever wanting to have this, 
give me half an hour to talk about why we've all chosen to be teachers, why we're going to make Kettlethorpe High School the best school in Wakefield, why we're going to use it to inspire and and motivate every child who comes into our care, who we can grow. You know, we had, I was like 22 years old, ready to change the world, and there were staff in there who were maybe 55 years old who were like a bit bro- uh, browbeaten by the whole, you know, teaching experience and maybe had lost that enthusiasm. But I think it could have been rekindled. You know, I just think we did, we missed an opportunity to do that. And I think as as leaders in schools or in education, for example, sometimes we we get drawn and understandably so into the sort of the reporting of the management tasks, the things we need to do, the Ofsted report that's coming around the corner or the exam results that we need to hit. But the reality is if we work on our identity and our culture and our sense of belonging to the tribe, you know, our school tribe and our, our community that we represent, I think that'll come anyway, naturally, you know. But I think as leaders, we often get distracted by the sheer managerial side of things. I mean, obviously, you, you know, politics far better than me. You know, I, I'm desperate for some politicians just to show some authenticity, some, in, not integrity, because they've all got, I'm sure they're all integ- got great levels of integrity, but just real sense of, emotional leadership I'm looking yeah. for in politicians you know yeah. someone who I can connect with who I can believe in who wants to be a force for good you know I think those people they're hard to find because often when you hear them speak you you get lost in the in the rhetoric rather than the actual truth well one, one of the people I um interviewed for this podcast and and for my book accomplishment was Louisa Diogo who was finance minister and then prime minister of Mozambique and when I asked her what the role of government was in growing the Mozambique economy, she said, our job is to unlock the music in people. Yeah. So I think it's a very nice, a very nice metaphor because yeah. in the end, you're a, a highly successful manager of a brilliant rugby club, but you don't kick a single ball or make a single tackle on the field. The players do that, don't you? And so if you've unlocked the music in them, you can just sit and watch. You might do a half-time talk, but basically they're out there. They've got to do the job. Yeah, they're, they're out there, but they're inspiring the crowd who are inspiring yeah. the community. And yeah. Um, yeah. I remember one of the things with England, we had a, they wanted to come up with some sort of strap line. I said, it's England connected. I wanted to connect right. the team to the country, to wear the white shirt with pride, to um, feel a sense of identity of what it means to be English. And, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Owen, uh, Owen Eastwood. And so I worked with him in 2012, 2013, on what does it mean to be English, you know, and that's right. quite a hard thing to, we, we, yeah. we, this is a whole other podcast we could talk yeah. about, but, you know, we, like, you know, we could talk about, like, what does it mean to be English? Because we were playing Wales who were desperate to beat us, playing Scotland who were desperate to beat us, who were playing Ireland who were desperate to beat us. And, you know, how can we put the red rose and the white shirt on with a sense of pride that connects everyone together? Yeah. And you look at Gareth, what he did with the football team, um, I think one of the really interesting challenges for me coming around the corner, and probably the reason I've taken on the job at Racing 92, is how do I do that in a foreign country, in, 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 in France, which is culturally quite different, you know, from England and Ireland, where I've worked before. I don't speak the language that well. It's quite an eclectic mix of players from different countries, as well as obviously homegrown French players, some academy, some not. How do I wrap all that together, create a sense of reason why, a purpose, a sense of belonging in this team of great players and create a, a winning team over the next four years. You know, that's probably the biggest driver why I've taken taken the job I have, you know. 
it's a great challenge to have and I'm sure you will do very well there and it's a very exciting new opportunity and then you've got a few months ahead of hopefully stellar success with Leinster congratulations on everything you've achieved and thank you very much for this conversation which has been a great learning experience for me no thank you thank you no great to be invited thank you Thank you for listening to the Accomplishment Podcast and my thanks to guest, Stuart Lancaster. You can also get in touch with me on Twitter at MichaelBarber9. There's a book that accompanies this podcast, Accomplishment, How to Achieve Ambitious and Challenging Things, published by Penguin. Also, don't forget to review the Accomplishment Podcast and subscribe so you don't miss the great game changers telling their stories on how to get things done. This podcast is produced by Siobhan O'Connell, thanks to her and to the rest of the team. 